This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to guard our liberties. This is Daniel Horowitz back in the house here at CR Podcast Blaze Media for Friday, end of a really exhausting week. It is March 5th, and it is my wife's birthday, so happy birthday to her. It is also the anniversary of the Boston Massacre. I was just thinking that today... March 5th, that was the day Paul Revere made that very inaccurate painting of what happened. Colonists started up with the British, but nonetheless, it was for the right cause. Wrong means right cause, and it led to the creation of the greatest nation on earth that we have now lost. Where and when will our Boston Massacre moment take place? Of course, we don't want bloodshed. What I mean by that is, when is our watershed moment? Yesterday, we talked a little bit about a Boston Tea Party moment. Do we need a Boston Massacre moment? I'm telling you, folks, it is all about the mask. If you don't believe me, just take a look at Connecticut. Even the blue states, I told you, they're getting rid of all the restrictions, except for one thing. The mask. There's a reason for that. Now... We are going to have probably the greatest expert in the country on exposure to hazards, particulates, PPE, protection. Really excited about this guest. Trying to get him to testify before all the legislatures. Only a Neanderthal can believe a mask stops a virus. Now, wanted to get to a couple of things. Just real quick. Real, real quick. I'm getting a lot of emails from people in Texas telling me that they are noticing a lot of their school districts are dragging their feet on getting rid of the mask mandate. This is something we're going to have to watch out for. We're going to name and shame them. Okay? This is something we're going to have to do early and often and make sure, you know, call your attorney general. I guess that's Ken Paxton's office. If they are not listening, because I'm just telling you, they have embedded this in culture so deeply that it's not going to go away without a fight. And again, we have to continue pushing in the legislature to take it off. Then you go over to Mississippi and you read the fine print and Tate Reeves is doing a bait and switch. First of all, he's recommending that people wear masks. He is saying that businesses should follow the CDC guidelines. So that's going to make it essentially impossible in the so-called private sector because they're just going to continue mandating it. But he explicitly said that schools need to mask the kids. I've never seen anything so backwards in my life. The kids are the first people that should never be masked. It makes no sense. So again, we have a fight in Mississippi. Don't let him get away with it. Don't let him get away with it. It's that simple. 
So there we are with the mask issue. And folks, this has become so satanic that here's a story someone sent me, one of our listeners, Stephen, I think, National File. And this is in Florida. Judge rips kids away from moms who get caught not wearing masks. Broward County Circuit Judge Dale Cohen has repeatedly suspended parental timesharing arrangements for mothers who have been caught not wearing masks, according to interviews with parents and stunning audio and court documents obtained by National File. Cohen, who was originally appointed by Jeb Bush, indefinitely suspended parental timesharing for Melanie Joseph when he heard that she was seen in a photograph on social media not wearing a mask. Joseph said that she was merely trying to take a break from the mask. Um, Joseph later made an agreement with heavy restrictions, including mandatory vaccinations and a mandate that her um, 14-year-old son, who has asthma, wear a mask to get limited time-sharing back. Folks, it's all at war. This is the hill to die on. This is everything. Again, if government could do this to our bodies, there's nothing they can do. Moreover, this is the symbol of submission. Moreover, this is what makes everyone fear each other and basically serves as the conduit through which they could pour the sewer pipe of all sorts of tyranny into. This is the issue. It's not over by a long shot. Again, states like Wyoming, Utah, Utah, they they just passed the bill out of the House to basically say, if it meets a certain benchmark, you could take the mask mandate off. But then, just like in Mississippi, they say kids still have to wear it. This is Utah. This is why we need our strike force teams. We need to shame these guys. We need to pressure the heck out of them. Call them, call them, expose them. We're just about ready to pick some team leaders in a couple of states. Again, I'm a one-man show with a couple of good volunteers. Not, you know, it's not a lot I can do immediately to have 30 teams off the ground. So I appreciate your patience. Still sign up at conaction.network. But I do want to get to our very special guest. Now, folks, one of the most remarkable things that I think we've ever seen in our history and I'm not kidding, in our history, is what has gone on with this mask mendacious cult. The fact that as late as March, April last year, everyone recognized basic science that you can't block the ocean from coming in a submarine with a screen door. Everyone knew that. Then suddenly it flipped from being a nothing to being everything to the point where you could literally violate every human right in order to get everyone to wear it under all circumstances. A friend of mine just posted something on Twitter today about an American Airlines stewardess. You know, they're getting ruder and ruder who had a woman in tears who just took it down for a second, couldn't breathe, and then put it back up. They were going to kick her off a plane. We're treating it that it's greater than a vaccine. It's greater than anything. And yet, despite the fact that 10 months worth of data demonstrate that the original research, the original common sense was correct, 
that there is zero correlation between a mask mandate and positive results. If anything, it is slightly reverse in any place that we've run the analysis. The only RTC that's ever been done on it shows no correlation. It's in Denmark, coinciding with the 10 RTCs done on the flu that CDC cited as late as May. And yet, as I noted, even in the red states, even the ones where the governors are relinquishing it a little bit, they're still basically saying it works. It's just that the levels are low enough. We don't need to wear it now, but they reserve the right to mandate it. And as I've noted, we're going to have to work it at a local level because they're still really forcing it in the schools. But this goes back much longer than you even think. Much longer. The date is April 2nd, 2020. Washington Post article. Eliza McGraw. Everyone wore masks during the 1918 flu pandemic. They were useless. Washington Post headline from April 2nd. It's it's worth your read, but it ends off with the following paragraph. Through the attempts to make wearing masks seem normal, positioned at stores alongside everyday things such as tobacco, mustache, grooming, and dancing, the grim truth persisted. Quote, the masks worn by millions were useless as designed and could not prevent influenza. Barry wrote, only preventing exposure to the virus could. Okay? And that was the Washington Post from April of last year. With us today is someone who is going to explain the science behind the obvious. As I've noted for too long... We've had a couple of industrial hygienists on the show, but I've noted that we focus on a doctor. We need a doctor. And the irony is what a doctor can tell us is what symptoms to watch out for, what prophylaxis to take, what early treatment to take, what are the protocols. That much after a year, except for a couple of very brave, studious doctors, they have nothing to say. But instead, they get into a different lane of industrial hygiene exposure science, which is not their expertise, and they say stuff that a first grader knows is not true. Stephen Petty is a certified industrial hygienist. He owns his own company, EES Group, a forensic engineering company in Florida. He worked for really four decades in the industry, Columbia Gas, Patel. He holds nine U.S. patents. He has testified in court for years as a subject matter expert on hazardous particulates. So this is really someone you want to talk to about modes of transmission, what helps, what works, what doesn't, how it transmits. I've really been looking forward to this. And for the first time, he is going to give his amazing presentation to our audience. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us on this fine Friday. Well, look, you heard my intro. I want you to take it from there, and I'm gonna, I think I'm going to start from this vantage point. So let's say, I don't know, we're talking about 13, 15 months ago, pre-COVID, and you are working to deal with compliance for OSHA standards at a company that has employees working in hazardous environments. And the hazardous substances they were dealing with 
had particulates that were predominantly one-tenth, maybe two-tenths of a micron. And you said to them, man, I have an amazing idea for you guys. Here's my advice as an exposure specialist to to help you guys make sure you're not exposed to something that everyone's saying is a problem. Wear a cheap Chinese cloth mask or a surgical mask. What would have happened to you in your profession? Well, I think the best example I can cite is asbestos particles are on the order of five microns, which are much larger. And as I've told others, the um, the difficulty is that nobody, I think, in my field, industrial hygiene, would recommend that we could protect workers from asbestos exposures, which are much larger than the virus, using a mask. In fact, I would argue that you lose your credentials for saying such a thing. So... Um, if you're going to protect somebody from from materials in terms of very small particles, and there's been this this big um, disinformation about whether these particles are droplets or aerosols, and the key is that the evidence is increasingly showing that the vast majority of these the emissions are actually uh, what we call aerosols, which are less than five microns, and and they. They are always, when you look at particulate, they're the particles that can get into the deep lung and, and um, are more problematic. So if, if you're going to protect somebody with a mask or, or more importantly, from respiratory um, contaminants, you, you have to use what we call the respiratory protection standard, which is OSHA uh, 29, uh, CFR 134. And that requires medical clearance. It requires you to use a respirator. And I, the simple answer is a respirator and a mask are two different things. And the big problem with a mask is that not only d- does it uh, have a large matrix by which very small particles can pass, but you essentially have freeways on all, all around it being that they don't seal. And uh, so the small aerosols can come in or go out around these masks, and, and it's common sense. You, you look at people wearing masks, and you see the big gaps around the edges. They can't seal. And, and what's been disappointing to me is you can go to the OSHA websites or the CDC websites, and they'll, they'll recommend on page one or whatever, we recommend wearing a mask. And then you dig down in to, like, page six on the OSHA website, and it says, well... They're not, you know, masks are not protective, and they're not PPE, meaning they're, you know, they can't be fit tested. So it's kind of a, it, you know, they they basically mislead you on the opening page, and then later on they they concede that masks don't really work, um, particularly for these aerosols, which are these small particles, and those are the ones increasingly that everybody's concerned with. And, and then obviously, I mean, we've exchanged some emails this week. I, I put a link in one of my articles that, you know, the literature that has come out and has studied the, you know, thousands of virons that are emitted by people that have the virus, that it, it seems like as much as 90% of that emission are the little guys, as you call them, you know, less than 0.3 microns. And, and and you're saying that for asbestos, which is five microns, you wouldn't recommend that a mask could somehow protect. And we're talking about 
um, the particulates that could be 150th, 130th, 125th of that size. And somehow we have this notion that that could work. And, you know, it was a nice fantasy. But now that we've seen that it absolutely doesn't work, um, I don't I don't know physics too well and biology and all that stuff. But what I do know is that they say, well, when you talk, you spit or you sneeze. And I'm thinking, like, I don't remember ever getting so close to someone that I had water go into their mouth. I mean, the only time I feel that happening is when I'm holding my baby on my hip, so she'll do that. But typically, that's a very rare thing because droplets that you could see that are big enough you could see, they're heavy. They don't suspend. They stay dropped. So could you talk a little bit about the matrix of size and time, meaning time and weight? So meaning not just the fact that um, it's mainly the small things that are getting out and they get through the mask and certainly the mask doesn't help, but the fact that if you want to have a functional society, unless you're all literally doing the you know lockdown in your house and society is starving to death, you're going to have all the essential people out and eventually everyone has to come out and you're going to go indoors. So once you're indoors, isn't it true that if someone does have the virus, um, not only certainly are they going to get in and out of the mass, but that they're suspended for a very long period of time. Yes, uh, there, there's two. Th- I've, I've been doing these sorts of calculations for years, and there's a there's a formula called Stokes' law, which looks at the diameter of a particle and its mass or its density, and how how fast or what the velocity is for it falling in still air. Now, appreciate that the air is mixed up; it'll stay suspended even longer. But if you look at um, these droplets that you hear about all the time, they're on the order of five to ten microns or larger, whereas the aerosols are uh, are five microns or less. So a droplet, of course, will will fall to the ground in in a matter of uh, you know a few minutes. But if you look at uh, particles that uh, say, for instance, um, are five microns, it's going to take an hour uh, to fall basically five feet. If it's 0.3 microns, it takes 178 hours or seven days, seven and a half days. So one of, one of the, what happens is, and you're seeing some science, in fact, there's been some, some requests by scientists to CDC to start to start and look at these aerosols. Because remember, when the COVID issue first came, it was surfaces. We've got to keep our mail isolated for two days. And then we went away from surfaces, and then we went to droplets. And now we're going to aerosols. Well, we should have always been going to aerosols um, because those are the small particles that, that get through your mucous tissues and get into the deep lung. Um, the, they're of most concern. And what happens, once, once you admit that the aerosol is a problem, then all of a sudden, since these things stay suspended upwards of days, the six-foot rule dies. I mean, you know, you, you could be in a store that somebody coughed and sneezed in, assuming that the dilution wasn't all that great from the HVC system, and those particles could still be there a day later when you went through. So um, it's, it's, you know, I've, I've done this analysis from particles in it, everywhere from 5 microns on aerosols down to 0.09, and the time of suspension is anywhere from an hour to almost 60 days. So... Um, 
the, the real solution from an industrial hygiene standpoint is um, what we call engineering controls, which is either dilution, and we'll talk more about that, or destruction. And, and people say, well, you know, at least uh, the, if, if, you, if you have this mask, it'll stop these droplets and, and uh, whatnot. Well, I, I kind of argue whether that's true or not, but even if it were, those things fall out real quickly. But the real issue with aerosols is, assuming that, that you have a person that was um, emitting or shedding the virus day one, and the ventilation is poor, because places where you tend to get sick are indoors where things concentrate and build up, then another person comes through a day later, then the con- it's adding to that concentration. So you could technically have a buildup um, if you look at aerosols, especially the fine ones. And so all of a sudden, the, the whole issue of the mask, which won't stop aerosols, and the six-foot rule, which, again, um, doesn't make any sense for aerosols, kind of go away. And you want to step back to what we call the hierarchy of controls in, in industrial hygiene, which looks first at in, um, engineering controls, which are destruction, containment, or dilution, and then next, administrative controls, which means stay out of the area, but that's impractical in, in many cases. And last and least desirable is PPE, because we know that PPE doesn't get worn properly because it's uncomfortable. And to top that off, even even though PPE... And, and, and that's when you're doing proper PPE, and, and masks are not even PPE. Right. The point is, it's the least desirable option, and, and masks, by OSHA's definition, albeit on page six or so of documents instead of page one admit that it's not PPE, that, that you can't fit test. And, and again, it's like the proof is in the pudding to what you're saying. Um, when this is very mechanical, very seasonal, it, it, it's a cycle. When it's bound to spread, it spreads like wildfire and there's nothing you do to stop it, regardless of what was done, when it was done in terms of non-pharmaceutical interventions. When it's not bound to spread, it's kind of dormant. And, and that's what we're, we're seeing now is kind of a dormant period of time most places Two months ago, three months ago, very much a lot of spread going on. And it made no sense that you could have that degree of spread from droplets. It just It's so rare that one human being could be, you know, spitting into another human being's mouth and it would land in the guy's mouth before dropping somehow. You know, you can get it. It's like getting a half-court shot in basketball, but not too many will get it. You would, it wouldn't account for millions of cases. And the aerosols, what you're describing, that really accounts for it. So it's funny, on October 7th, CDC published that, you know, aerosol is a mode of transmission. But they'll never connect it back that if so... Your whole obsession with masks is crazy. Now, there's a couple of things I want to get to before going back to your hierarchy, which I think is important. You know, the destruction, then the dilution. And then if you're forced to go into it, the worst thing to do is to go into it, then wear the PPE. But this, of course, is not PPE. Now, the, what they have been doing is something remarkable. And if I dare use Biden's term, a Neanderthal, it, it, it sure sounds like Neanderthal logic to me. And I want to get your take on it from a physics standpoint. I have never heard this in my life. So they're like, this is the most amazing thing you can do. Okay, we've all heard it. It's the single greatest thing you could do. I have my protect- protection. Uh, Robert Redfield, the former CDC director, famously 
said while holding the mask he just wore in and was going to wear on the way out of the committee hearing, held it up and then put it on the dais, you know, the, the where they testify before the Senate. This is better than a vaccine. This is my protection. I'm protected. And all of us said, awesome. So you're protected. So you're going to live. I'm the stupid one for not wearing a mask. So what, what do you care if I don't wear it? So they thought of this brilliant thing. They said, yeah, you're right. It doesn't help. Although CDC later on said it does help to protect you. But initially, and this is what everyone in the country remembers, it helps to protect the other guy. Is there something in the laws of science where something could be so efficacious that it 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 protects the other guy 100% if we're both wearing it, but if he's not, it goes down to zero? Of course not. Of course not. I think... I think a lot, you know, I have a background also in behavioral marketing and sciences and, and in the art of persuasion and order of effectiveness, it's emotional appeal, then re, propaganda, repeated message, and then logic in that order, unfortunately for us scientists. But what you, what you see is certain politicians and public health officials playing to that emotional appeal. You hear things like, well, wear a mask to protect your fellow person. And, of course, the public and even politicians want to do something to help. The, the, so it, it sells, and unfortunately it sells. You hear it over and over again, propaganda, you hear the emotional appeals. What's sad about it is we know the masks don't really work, and especially if it's an aerosol, which I think all, almost everyone would conclude, and I felt that way a year ago, um, that's the, the particles of concern and the method of transmission. So, you know, what we ought to be looking at is, is ensuring that we have maximum ventilation in indoor spaces and that we look at some of these destruction technologies because they have a much, you know, they have a 100% better chance of doing something than, than PPE that isn't PPE. So I, wa- I want to get into that. that. That's a really important point that I myself didn't think about. Throughout the week, I've been pushing a theme on the medical side of things saying, look, we spend so much time focusing on what doesn't work, even though the government is pushing it does work. And they pushed remdesivir and ventilators. And and meanwhile, we knew of all these very cheap um, either supplements slash drugs that were on the market for years, used in billions of doses for all sorts of different ailments from ivermectin to hydroxychloroquine. And then obviously all the supplements, the prophylaxis, the early treatment, all the protocols, the Zelenko protocol, the you know Dr. Pierre Corey, um, all these people that have come up with ideas to understand how this works, how to reverse the effects, and not a word about it. Again, for a fraction of the money that we spent on stuff that doesn't work, we could have spent on stuff that does work. So I sense you have a similar idea from the industrial um, hygienist science standpoint, from the transmission standpoint. You're saying we spent all of our efforts on masking people, which do- doesn't work. We spent it on shaming people. We spent it on locking down people, and therefore we caused trillions of dollars of economic damage. And now we're, we spent, you know, if this bill passes, it will be upwards of six, seven trillion total spent on this thing. You're saying for a fraction of that money, now this stuff is not dirt cheap like some of the drugs we're talking about, but it would be cheaper than what we're doing. There are methods out there that could disperse, dilute, and even kill the virons rather than somehow putting up a screen in front of them. Could you describe what some of that looks like? What, you know, and, and what sort of protocols you would put into place in like businesses and public places? 
Sure. I'll, I'll give you some examples. Um, w- almost w- one of the key engineering controls on pollutants in its common sense is to dilute it. And in many buildings, because energy policies have tightened them up, in other words, reduced the amount of outdoor or fresh air coming into the buildings, um, the first thing you can do is override those controls, cost a little more energy, but improve the indoor air quality, if you will, lower the concentrations by increasing the fresh air, open the dampers wide open. Um, you do increase energy consumption, and there are some humidity control issues, but it's better, that, you know, it helps people from being, getting sick. Um, I'm reminded on the ventilation issue, and I think I've mentioned this to you on the side, that I, I was reading uh, General uh, Tecumseh Sherman's memoirs about the Civil War, and at the end he he mentioned uh, lessons learned that that uh, my my soldiers and men uh, healed much faster from disease and wounds if they sat under an outdoor shade tree than if they were if they were put inside an enclosed structure. And uh, I I think that uh, when I hear public health officials say, "Stay inside." And don't go to the beach or don't go to parks. I want to, you know, it it, it kind of drives you crazy because the last place you want is people all, especially in multifamily with a lot of common areas, the last thing you want is people packed together because that, that's that's where the concentrations are the highest and where people are most likely to get sick. So you, you see a lot of these policies that are just not based really on science, and it's 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 annoying, frankly. One of the big problems is that you have a lot of people p- commenting, which are physicians or medical doctors, and and they're really not exposure industrial hygienists. And most people, they hear the word industrial hygienist and it sounds like going to the dentist or something. But it's a it's a whole area of science related to anticipation, recognition, evaluation, and control of things that make people sick, hurt them, make them uncomfortable, and even kill them. And so the public largely doesn't understand that there's a whole different dimension of science. And I always say to people, well, you don't really want, even though a a medical doctor may have some knowledge or may not, you certainly don't want your dentist, for example, doing your heart surgery or your brain surgery. So there are different sandboxes or disciplines that, that have expertise. That's what they do. And the area of exposure in PPE is, is an area dominated by a discipline called industrial hygiene, and that is not well understood by the public. So what I don't understand, and I've asked you know, Tammy and Kristen I've had on, you're, you're the third um, industrial hygienist I've had on. You have obviously a lot more experience than anyone I've, I've dealt with, but there are other people in your field. So my question is, why don't we hear from them? In other words, if you have a, a, a certain line of work where your entire career is done a certain way and government actually you know, forces you to train a certain way, and then suddenly they, they nuke every last premise they had you work on, I don't understand why industrial hygienists aren't screaming from the top of their lungs that – you know, you, you. My whole life, I've been working with a, a concept of you have to first identify the hazard, you have to test it, you have to test, you know, the size of it, how it gets in, and then what is effective, and then you got to fit test it, and you have to have the proper protocols. And we violated every last aspect. I mean, I've watched OSHA's 2011 video on PPE, and they say what you said. I mean, this is nothing new. They, they say it is not PPE. They don't work. Um, for viruses, 
They don't work for even bacteria, which is much larger. And it's it's that simple. Um, wh- where are they? Where, where, where are the troops? Well, I think the answer is uh, there aren't very many of us, actually. In terms of certified industrial hygienists, it's, it's probably less than 10,000. But if you combine, like in my case, I'm a certified industrial hygienist, but I'm also certified safety professional and a PE, and I, I think the numbers are like there's 200 of us in the United States. So we're under huge demand. For example, I've been the, an exposure PPE expert on, say, the, the Roundup cases. So we're, we're buried with real work. And uh, the other thing is I don't think that the discipline is largely understood in, uh, in the public uh, eye, in the public community, whether it be politicians or the media. And so it's a combination of not a lot of us and uh, the fact that the discipline just isn't recognized. The first place people know about diseases, they seem to go to medical doctors, which is fine, which is fine, but it, they're not really, um, they're not really uh, equipped to a deal with the industrial hygiene issues that we've talked about. No, no, and those people, except for the you know heroes like Zelenko and Corey, they should hang their heads in shame because what their job is is to talk about cytokine storm and thrombosis and super infections and how to reverse that, how to catch it early. Like after a year of millions of cases and so much literature, you know most of these um, PCPs that people go to, their primary doctor, uh, they have nothing to tell them. Nothing for them. They literally have nothing for them. Shut up, wear a mask, and don't get it. Except, well, masks don't work, so you are going to get it. Now what do I do? What do I do? Maybe prophylaxis. And it just, that issue bothers me. They didn't do what is in their lane. That's medical. Um, the, 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 the idea of transmission of particulates and what blocks that exposure, they have, they have no idea what they're talking about. Now, I found something very interesting. I think psychologically, a lot of Americans respect doctors. I think it's a field that's very respected. And I think psychologically, the reason why people have gone on with this Neanderthal thinking, to take off of Biden's word, that, that I mean, it's just, it's just so sophomoric, is because the idea of a mask is appropriate for a certain situation, but maybe even then doesn't even help. But people associate surgeons with wearing it. Now, we know... They wear it for a splash. Uh, a dentist wears it because, you know, the plaque flying off your teeth with that instrument is not microbiology. You could see it. It's large. Um, so, you know, just to block splashes, things that 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 are big, uh, certainly never blocks the little guys. But isn't it true that there really is no evidence that they work even for bacteria? Because what I've found with the literature that surgeon, surgeons just wear it. Some of it maybe came up because of HIV, um, splashes again, but that the only study done comparing um, a control group of surgeons who didn't wear it versus ones who did showed no, um, no better results in terms of infection for the patient. In fact, the control group did a little better. Um, certainly viruses, every single RCT that was done on the flu, showed it didn't work for the flu, uh, which was obvious because that's that's a virus. And even N95, even N- and I want to get your take on N95s because you know N95s are not those 
hazmat looking things you see in the labs and the, the the literature is not everyone assumes n95s work zeke emmanuel i quoted him yesterday from a year ago zeke emmanuel was on cnn uh uh, February 29th, and he said N95s don't work either. Now he's saying you should go and get them, of course, because they're changing their mind. What's your thought on an N95? Um, not that most people are going to be wearing them anyway. Well, sure. I mean, um, if I wear anything, I wear an, an N95. Or Actually, when I get on planes, I wear a half-face respirator, but I've been told on multiple occasions I have to take it off and put a mask on, which drives me a little crazy because I don't want to unprotect myself. But an N95, by definition, if it's properly fitted, that's a big if. You can't wear it with a beard, for example. Um, or um, it's, it's designed to take 95% of the 0.3 micron particles out of the air. So even at the 0.3 micron level, 5% are getting through, if it's properly fitted. Um, but if it's 0.1, then obviously... Uh, the data I've, the, some of the data that I've seen on the for flu on an on a, uh, N95 is that you might stop somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of the total particulate, um, but but it, if it's properly fitted, and um, of course almost none of this stuff is properly fitted nor even worn because remember PPE is of of the last resort because we know from decades that that PPE is is uncomfortable, and and it's only a matter of time till people break the seal or they you know they they pull it down, etc. So, so it's never a- exactly exactly. I, I'm so glad you're saying that that there's almost an inverse relationship right between yeah you could find there is PPE that's legitimate and does work, but. You, Life is not a surgical field or an, an environmental hazard. You can't live your whole not. You can't have the entire public acting like that. In other words, you want to go into a place for twenty minutes and you have a form-fitted N95 with the proper seal. Maybe there's partial efficacy, but but most of the transmission comes from people that are built up indoors for seven, eight, nine, ten-hour shifts or in school or whatever. And those people are going to be dropping of hypoxia if they ever did it. So they don't do it. They wear the comfortable cloth mask. It would never get off the ground. Part of the reason why the masking got off the ground is because people who have to wear it for a long period of time, which is where they're going to get the virus, um, they wear the most comfortable thing, which doesn't work. But the, the few people I see wearing N95s, usually they don't have the clamp. They wear it like a cloth mask. It's an N95, but they wear it like a cloth. And I'm sure because it's expensive, they reuse it. And isn't it true that it loses its um, its charge after a while, right? Well, of course, you're, it's the the edge uh, the edges will get um, the edge seals will be worse with time. Obviously, they wear. And and I'm here, you know, I've I've fit tested and for decades, and I've worn. In fact, I wear on a plane a half face respirator. And believe me, after four to six hours of wearing that. It it's stressful, and um, so it, it's uncomfortable. So that's why we all know as industrial hygienists that PPE is at the last resort, and we know that masks aren't PPE. So we got to come up with other solutions, and there there are other solutions. Um, I will just add that a, the analogy I try to give people, and it may not be perfect, about a mask is: imagine that your mask is a wall, but the wall is made of chain link fence with big holes in it. 
And imagine that the gaps around your mask are like windows around the wall, but there's no windows in them. They're just open. And imagine the virus is a gnat. Well, the gnat can certainly get through the mask, but he doesn't have to worry about that because he can just go through the open windows, which are the gaps on the side of your, your mask. Because appreciate that these viruses are much smaller than a human hair diameter. And so can you imagine? It's not hard to imagine you could slip a hair around these masks. And, and also, I mean, for years, the government said not to wear it for um, smoke inhalation in out in the West during wildfire season. They say blatantly on the Montana, Wyoming, Utah Departments of Health uh, website, California Department of Health website has a very strong statement. And I'll pull that up as I'm talking to you where they they admit it doesn't help. And isn't it true that uh, smoke particles are much larger? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the particulate standards for non-respirable particles are things greater than 5 microns. So 5 to 15 or so is what you measure. So those are, are particles, and that's something like you would expect to see in soot. Um, anything less than five microns is called respirable, meaning it can reach the deep lung, and that's obviously what you want to stop, especially for things that cause disease. Well, wait, wait, back up. That uh, that's that's an interesting thing you're saying. I I don't think I've discussed this with my audience enough. You're saying, and I want to make sure I get this right. It's not just the gravity that the smaller things are going to get out more. They're going to suspend. They're not going to fall to the ground, but. Even pound per pound, if you have a big thing get in your mouth, a small thing, you're saying it's the small thing that's going to penetrate deeper inside of you that's going to create that, you know, what do they call it? Um, Operational pneumonia, I think, is the term they're giving for the, the, the main thing that causes the problem with COVID. Sure. Eventually, the material has to get down to the air sac so it can interface with the blood system, et cetera. So, um, you the larger particles oftentimes are, are slowed down or, or stopped by the respiratory tract all the way from the nose to the, to the, through the, to the top of the lung. And it, but the little guy, I call them the little guys, the aerosols, they, they are the ones that can just get right through all that tortuous pathway because they're very small. And that's why you pay more attention to them because it's pretty well known that it's the little guys that you're concerned with in the distribution of particles. Whether it be, you know, you've even heard this diesel exhaust where they go to PM 2.5, where they're looking at the smaller ones now instead of the larger ones. Those are 2.5 microns. Those are still pretty big particles. But, but they're more concerned about the little ones than they are the big ones. And that's a 2 microns yeah i mean again we're talking about much much smaller i mean that's more like large bacteria maybe um you know this is again from the california department of health it is on their website to this day mask use this for, for fire fire um fire season uh mask use may give the wearer a false sense of security which might encourage too much physical activity and time spent outdoors because in this case outdoors is where the problem is also, wearing a mask may actually be harmful to some people with heart or lung disease because it can make the lungs work harder to breathe. Um, from your experience, you know, what are some of the harms that we might see? Because, you know, a lot of the things that I think they really get people on is, look, you know, what could it hurt? It's something we could do. It's so easy. Just put it on, you know, just just wear it. What are some of the issues um, from your understanding of, of microbiology, uh, prolonged 
what mask wearing i mean does it cause bacterial infections and and, and harm the respiratory system yeah certainly it could accumulate materials and and trap them and then it, you know there's evidence already that children that wear masks have higher rates of strep throat etc but the bigger harm i think is the fact that the public spends their time and energy emotional energy thinking that that's doing some good when it you know at best it's very minimal and um where they could be doing things that actually would make a difference. And that is dilution, destruction. Um, you know, I always tell friends, I, you know, I, I gave a presentation in front of 300 teachers in uh, August in Ohio, and um, they were all commenting on the fact that the rates of corona had really increased in the South, particularly forward, et cetera. And I said, well, you know what that is, don't you? And they're like, no. I said, well, First of all, it got hot and humid down there. So guess what? If you're you're going to a restaurant or you're visiting people, are you going to stay inside where it's air conditioned or are you going to stay outside where it's very hot and humid? Well, you're going to go inside. And what happens then? Okay, we know that the buildup of contaminants increases in indoor spaces. That's well known. Um, and what's the other problem? Well, people are wearing their masks, so they think they're doing some good and they think they're protected. So they congregate more than they should. And so, um, when I, so I said, watch what happens in the north when it gets cold and people stay inside. Watch the rates go way up. Guess what happened? They went way up. Why? For all the same reasons. Um, and so the, the biggest damage is that we're not taking actions that actually could make a difference. And I tell people, if you're at home and you have friends over, you know, sit outside more if you're really concerned. If, if you want... Open windows and chew up a little electricity for heat or cold or gas because diluting that is going to make a difference. Diluting whatever might be in your home is going to be happen if you open spaces. Yeah, you chew up some energy, but that's something you can do that can make a difference. And there is this uh, technology that I, I uh, think uh, looks like it may work, which is called... Um, this needlepoint ionization technology, which supposedly, and, and I've got them in my, both my homes and in my businesses, and I've recommended them to dozens of people, and it's, it's one of, at least New Calgon makes the technology, but it's about $400 for six-ton systems. And it's supposed to, on each pass, destroy 99% of viruses, mold, and bacteria. And it doesn't seem to have a lot of side effects like ozone or things like that. So there are there are solutions that should be increasingly looked at, evaluated, and, and implemented on the engineering control side. And the, bigger, the biggest danger is the public hasn't been given proper information on this hierarchy of controls. Engineering control is much better than PPE, and this is the master on PPE. And so they spend their time and energy doing things that, including our public health officials, that aren't particularly constructive when there are things that could be constructive. So generally speaking, a virus is going to virus. It's very hard to stop it. You're not really going to stop it. But but a year ago, for a fraction of the money and the effort without taking anyone's liberty, we pissed away $7 trillion. You're telling me, and I, I know you're not saying so much the first half. That's not your expertise, but I'm saying it. We could have given people hydroxy, ivermectin, all the education about loading up on vitamins and the things and zinc and the things that actually work and the protocols of what to do when. And likewise, the second half of it in terms of the transmission, 
they could have invested more in these either filtrations or the systems that will kill the bacteria because that you can do. And we could have avoided so much of this without taking people's freedoms, without disrupting most of our economy. I mean, this is truly unbelievable. And doing, and doing some good. I mean, I'll give you another example. I, I'm, uh, I'm a coin collector, and um, most of the coin shows have been closed as a result of COVID around the country. And, and I, I was insistent that uh, we have one in August in Ohio, the Ohio State Coin Show, um, to give people choices. Um, and what I, but what I did was I went to the hotel and I, the ballroom had four major vents in the ceiling, and I said, I got a hold of engineering. It took me two times before they listened to me, and I said, I want those vents wide open and run, all the fans running, and I want all the dampers on your HV systems wide open. When we had that show, it was like a wind tunnel in there, and I know it chewed up some energy, but the, the engineer said to me, boy, that's brilliant. I said, not really. I said, it's common sense. Um, to my knowledge, we had... So we had several hundred people um, attend, and to my knowledge, because we asked people to get back to us if they ended up having a problem, to my knowledge, everybody was fine. Um, now, I know it's a bit anecdotal, but it, it's the kind of things you want to do to make a difference. And the point you're making is, you know, different people have to make their own choices. Different people have different threat levels. Um, different people care about things more. But they claim to be the ones that, that think COVID is the most important thing in the world and that they care more than anyone else. But the irony is they don't, like you're saying, because the funny thing is most of these type of companies won't do anything else, right? The ones that have all their virtue signaling signs about masks, they won't install this stuff. But the minute you come in with the cheapest of reworn cloth masks, you're fine. You're good. Hey, let's hug each other. Let's do business. But if you don't, it's like, I'll kill you. I'll gouge your eyes out. Like, I can almost, like, dehumanize you for it. And really, it doesn't make a difference. But what does make a difference, we're all kind of, like, running around in circles, missing the point. We're almost out of time, but I want to get your thoughts on two other things. Another Neanderthal um, premise is... Those that missed the point that the flu was not circulating the minute COVID was circulating, even before everyone was doing the ritualistic moon dance and rain dance, or in the countries or states that weren't doing it, it still wasn't circulating. But nonetheless, there is this gospel being spread around like wildfire that masks killed the flu. Now, I have all the data, the ge geographical distribution the medical stuff to, to debunk that. But I want to hear from an exposure standpoint. Is there any sort of science that could possibly explain how this could absolutely do nothing to prevent COVID, but it could prevent the flu? Well, it doesn't make I mean, it just, the bottom line is it doesn't make sense. I mean, um, I don't know how else to go through that. I mean, it's just that doesn't make sense. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the virons are roughly the same size, I think, you know. Um, well, yeah, flu particles and COVID look to be, I mean, a lot of the research that's being relied on and looked at in the past has been associated with looking at flu-sized particles. And near as I can tell, they're in the same range in terms of particles. They're in the same range. Yeah, and, and, and again, the irony is all the RCTs said they didn't 
work. It was tried. Their whole thing was, well, we never tried it for COVID. Now they've come and and ignoring the Danish study, of course, let's ignore that. Now they've come full circle like, yeah, well, I guess it didn't work for COVID, but you still have to wear it for COVID. Um, but it works for the flu. I mean, but no, that we always knew it never worked. Um, I mean, it's just what? Yeah, at some level, I would I would defer to the epidemiologist on that question because obviously that, that has to be studied. But it, at least from the standpoint of looking at it from industrial hygiene and particle sizes, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. No, that, that's what I want. Yeah, I wasn't asking you to obviously venture into why the flu does seem to have disappeared. But, but yeah, the notion that it's mass that did it is just, um, again, because it, it's this has happened every single place, regardless of if they had a mandate, when they had a mandate, for how long, um, and including everywhere before anyone had a mandate because we have the CDC surveillance numbers and the flu literally died mid-February last year. It has never done that. Um, the numbers just dropped, and it, it you know, just on a base level, it clearly has something to do with the initial circulation of COVID, not the reaction to it, because the masking really wasn't um, in most places till April, May, uh, that that got off the ground. Um, again, and I, I'm sorry. Or coding, or coding of disease, or coding of diseases, and how that data is collected. But as far as the particle size distributions go, all the things I've talked about about masks for COVID would be applicable to, uh, in my mind, would be applicable to flu size particles as well. And also, what I've talked to some from talking to some people that are experts on medicine, they seem to believe that COVID is more of a dry lower lung thing than an upper lung thing. The flu is more wet. So in other words, you know, these are par- particles that get much deeper in for for COVID. Um, but, I mean, they do, again, they're the same size pretty much. So whatever particles get in, get in. I mean, I no one has yet to explain that. Nobody has gotten up there to try to give a scientific explanation why you'd have a dichotomy from a standpoint of mask working but then there's the other insanity i got to get your take on so it's funny there's this passive aggressive thing where they're admitting masks don't work but doubling down on them so they admit they don't work for covid but they say it works for the flu but you still have to wear it for covid okay the next thing is they say well one mask didn't work one mask, two masks, red mask, blue mask, just uh, to tribute to Dr. Seuss this week. Um, now, again, I'm not an industrial hygienist like you, but I want to start off with my view and get your view. My view is that life doesn't work that way. There are certain devices and you know products that are designed a certain way, and rarely in life is it, well, let's just double it. You get double the protection. Doesn't it weaken the seal on the first one? Well, the best answer to that is imagine my uh, remember that my wall is a chain link fence and then the windows with no windows in them around the edge well if you put a second mask up there I guess you put double the chain link fence but the net still can go around it they're still not sealed they're not PPE and you know I, I get asked those questions a lot in litigation um, you know isn't it true that that'll make a difference and and I'll use this quick analogy. I, I always say, well, the answer kind of goes like this parable. I said, imagine you have a mathematician and an engineer in a room looking at a far wall, and you're asked the question by the moderator, if you have the distance to the wall, you step forward halfway, and you have the distance again, 
and you do that forever, do you get to the wall? And the mathematician, of course, will say no, theoretically no, and the engineer says, yep, close enough. And so the answer there is, I guess, in the infinitesimal sense, theoretically, it could make some small difference, but in the in the global sense, I don't think it makes hardly any difference at all. Well, because also, also, Stephen, isn't it true <clears throat> that it's not just a matter of, oh, they could get around the gaps in the fibers or on the sides, isn't it, in fact, that this is how the flow of transmission works? Isn't it kind of similar to water that it chooses the, <clears throat> the path to least resistance? Yeah, think of a manifold where you you have a supply into a, a, a tank and it's got uh, a very large opening and a very small opening. Well, where do you think the water flows out of? <laughs> well, the lar largest space. Exactly. So where do you think the, the small particles are going to go first? They're going to go through the, the open windows, the gaps, or are they going to go through the mass? They probably go through both, frankly, because they're both big gaps. But certainly there's no restriction going through the gaps. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and again, this is why we see no, zero, zero correlation anywhere, anytime, any place. Now, I know, again, you know, you're not claiming to be an expert on COVID, but I do want to get your your feeling on this because this is something I'm personally just not sure about. We, Like you noted, we started off with the obsession about touching fomites. And then we suddenly like dropped it like a rock in order to obsess about masks. And, and as you noted, it was never droplets, it was aerosols, so that was always a lie. But to me, it still logically makes sense that fomites might be some sort of a factor. So when you have everyone... Like, they won't stop touching their mask. They they reuse it. They put it in their pocket. They take it out again. Um, So two things. Doesn't it get damp over time and become even less effective for what it was even originally supposed to work for, which isn't this? And number two, if, if you are dealing with a period of widespread transmission where there is a lot of COVID going around, aren't you likely spreading it more just through touch? Uh. Potentially, I mean, it's 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 incremental at best. I still, since my position is the masks are pretty much ineffective for our aerosols, um, it whether you put it, when you put it on later and say it has an accumulation of uh, material on the mask itself, um, I I still think because of the way people shed and the volumes of of uh, viruses that are shed if they're sick. Um, that the pathway, since the masks don't seal, the pathway through the outside as well as through it is is the predominant way this stuff gets out. And um, so I'm not disagreeing that it might have some incremental contribution, but I still think it's minor relative to just the straight pathway out when somebody breathes, if they're sick. That, that's actually really fascinating because it sounds like what you're saying is it's such a joke. It's so ineffective. It's like a chain link fence that, yeah, it might not even cause a problem because there's just nothing on. I mean, it just goes straight in and in and out. Um, so it, maybe it doesn't contribute to more spread, but cer certainly in that case, then it doesn't uh, help. Um, just to close up, we're coming in on, on a full hour here and, uh, got to, I know we both have to go. This has really been very engaging. We'd love to have you back again. I just want to sum up from a behavioral standpoint. Um, 
obviously a lot of people uh, need to know that in addition to your science background, you actually got an MBA. You were number one in your class. You studied marketing. Look, but all oh, behavioral marketing. So, so looking at the behavioral marketing behind this, what do you think is the best antidote, the best vaccine against the behavioral marketing that has created this national psychosis behind the mask wearing? We have we have to come up with emotional arguments repeated over and over again, just like they the other side does, that that demonstrate. The, the parameters that I've talked about give real world examples like, you know, these things are 50 times or 20 times smaller than asbestos, and we would never recommend a, a mask for protecting you from asbestos. Uh, and then we have to, we have to really work on convincing people of uh, solutions that actually have a chance of helping them um, and, and come across as wanting to help them because People want to do something to help, and they want to do something to protect themselves, their family, and their fellow man. So uh, you, have, you have to offer them things that will, will actually make a difference and then persuade them that, that, that it does. And I don't think it's all that hard to do. I just don't think the message has been put out there. Yep, yep. I, and I, th- I think you're right. I, I think as much as we're right that their stuff doesn't work, this is why I've been pushing from the medical side, you know, the prophylaxis. It, it, it's better than a vaccine. It really is. If, if, if everyone would take it, take that stuff preemptively, it would work. And likewise, I think what you're bringing to the table is if you are worried about transmission indoors, focus on the filter filters, focus on some of the technology that could kill the um, – the virons instead of just trying to put up a chain link fence in front of it. And that, that would resonate. And again, what is that technology that people could find? Yeah, it's uh, one of the manufacturers of this needlepoint uh, technology is new Calgon I wave, the capital I wave dash wave. Uh, again, the solutions for people are straightforward. Spend as much time outdoors. Uh, outdoors, the best. If you have people over, Chew up some electricity by opening your windows and doors and ventilating your house. And, um, and obviously, if you're uh, sick, you don't want to go outside and spread it. But then also look at this destruction technology, this new Calgon I-Wave. I wish, I wish we spent as much money looking at this needlepoint technology, which seems like it works, uh, looking at destructive technologies we could add to furnaces so that you know, we take care of, of this virus should it be present. The biggest problem you have is how do you really know when somebody's sick if they're in your house or in your apartment or whatever? You really don't until after the fact almost in many cases, especially for the non-symptomatic people. So you really you really need engineering controls that begin to address uh, either dilution or destruction of the virus in, in indoor spaces, which is where the virus is going to have the most concentration and where you're most likely to get sick. Wow, that was very engaging. Really appreciate that. Um, Again, folks, this is Stephen Petty, a certified industrial hygienist, a guy who has actually dealt with this for four decades instead of just suddenly becoming an expert in in, in masks like all these uh, TV TV doctors, whoever they are. This is where it's at. we got to start pushing back. There's a lot more work to do. Stephen, thanks so much for your presentation. And really looking forward to having you back again. 
Thanks so much for having me. And there you have it, folks. We are way out of time. Same time, same place next week on Monday. Have a terrific weekend. Stay knowledgeable, stay informed, and fight back.